0: Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics, coming up. The government will continue to spend heavily to fight the effects of the pandemic.
1: You already know
0: what our essential policy
1: is. It is to do whatever it takes to protect Canadians' health, jobs, and living standards.
0: The Conservatives plan to vote against a Bloc Québécois motion calling for an official apology for the October crisis detentions. The leader of the Conservatives back then Mr. Stanfield voted with the government. But a few months later, a few years later perhaps, he said that he did regret it. And he said that the loi des Mesures de Guerre was unacceptable and unjustified. If Mr. Stanfield did say so, I believe that logically the conservatives of today will agree with the Bloc Québécois. And a vote on banning conversion therapy exposes divisions within the Conservative caucus.
2: The overwhelming consensus in the Conservative Party is that they do not want to make this rift public because I think it was a very calculated tactic on Justin Trudeau's part to bring forward this bill and try and expose some of these cracks.
0: It's Thursday, October the 29th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. Let's talk about Christia Freeland's speech yesterday. Uh, what were some of the takeaways from your perspective as she defended the government's spending and the lack of a fiscal anchor and talked about how uh, this might have to continue for some time as the pandemic continues to affect Canadians?
2: Yeah, well, she... Said that fiscal targets will come at some point, but emergency spending must stay in place for now. You know, a lot of what she said was uncontroversial, as she pointed out herself. That the idea that the government was going to stand by and watch families and businesses go broke, well, nobody was really suggesting that. Nobody thought that was going to happen. So, but it was the rest of her speech that was problematic for me. She spent a lot of time talking about how Canada can afford the current spending spree because interest charges as a share of GDP at 100-year lows. So therefore, the idea that we're going to have another debt crisis like the mid-1990s is not going to happen. She said it's a poor general who fights the last war. You know, it's implicitly dismissing a lot of the criticism that's been going around from people like former Bank of Canada Governor David Dodge and ex-TD Chief Economist Don Drummond. Uh, She said that none of the factors that were that drove that crisis in the 1990s hold true today, principally high interest rates, you know, where 38 cents on the dollar were being spent uh, servicing. 38 cents on, of, of tax, on the tax revenue dollar was being spent uh, servicing the debt. I mean, we're nowhere near that these days. But clearly the uh, the uh, deficits are high, and we don't know how the government is going to respond to that. I mean, what, what is going to be their target? Are they going to bring deficits down, for example, to $100 billion a year? from the you know wherever we are now it could be as much as 400 billion so that was kind of problematic I, I think a lot of people are very uncomfortable with the idea that we're relying on low interest rates to to handle this problem which which uh, you know clearly you're not going to be paying that debt off you're just relying on the interest rates being low uh, and essentially handing the problem off to future generations the other thing that struck me was that she she didn't really have much to say about what's going to happen beyond the pandemic There was no real idea of a sustained economic growth plan. And I think that that is also upsetting a lot of people because they feel at this stage in the game we should have a plan on how to get out of it. Now, just by coincidence, or maybe not coincidence, the Business Council of Canada released its own plan, and it kind of filled in a lot of those gaps that were in the minister's speech.
0: Yeah, so... What what do you think some of those gaps are and, and what kind of growth plan can there be post-pandemic?
2: Well, some of the things that were, were happening pre-pandemic will happen again, I think. I mean, we've got to start attracting immigrants again with specialized skill sets, retaining international students, boosting the, uh, the, the participation rate in the labor force of women. There are a number of other things that are well-known and long-standing problems like broadband coverage, Uh, Interprovincial trade barriers, uncompetitive personal income tax rates in some provinces. But the one thing that that struck me and struck other people who've looked at this is that the government hasn't really talked about innovation or the digital economy in recent times. It came up with this super clusters idea and then really hasn't talked about it too much. And in fact, a a number of companies who are members of of a group called the Council of Canadian Innovators, which is a business group focused on helping tech firms scale up, They pointed out that the government has talked a good game and not really done much here. And they're calling on the government to use the procurement facility of the government to actually gear that spending towards Canadian high-tech firms. You know, it sounds kind of protectionist. It sounds like it's picking winners and losers. But that seems to be what's happening elsewhere. And as the Business Council pointed out today, full market neutrality is not possible any longer. So I think that those kinds of ideas are still absent. The government seems to be totally, I mean, who can blame it for being focused on the pandemic? But it also has to to rely on more than low interest rates to get us out of this mess. And really, I think there is no substitute for economic growth.
0: Yeah, and is that going to be the solution ultimately? There are people saying, well, there's a day of reckoning coming. We're going to have to have higher taxes. We're going to have to pay back this this huge debt that we've incurred during the pandemic. But is that the case, or can that just be added to our national debt? Uh, can that be kept at a manageable level, and can growth uh, simply close the gap and allow the government to get back into balance or closer to balance down the road?
2: Well, kind of a sustain Large deficits. There's no doubt about that. Don Drummond, the the, the TD, former TD economist, came up with a range of scenarios last week. One of them is that we have deficits of $100 billion a year going forward. You know, that takes the debt-to-GDP ratio into the 60% range, double what the, what the Liberals had said it was going to be. But while these interest rates are so low, the uh, it, it does essentially... Uh, it's still affordable, but if you add a hundred billion dollars of new debt every single year, you are going to end up with a whopping bill at the end of the day. And at some point, interest rates are going to go up, and at some point, international markets are going to say, "Well, I think Canada is not looking sustainable anymore. You know, we're going to remove its uh, AAA credit rating. We're going to demand higher interest payments to uh, to take on its debt. I mean, it cannot be a good thing in perpetuity." to rack up massive deficits. We know that. I mean, the laws of economics have not been suspended uh, just because we've got low interest rates.
0: All right, let's turn to a couple of other stories, John. Yesterday in the House of Commons, there was a vote on a ban on conversion therapy, and there were some Conservative MPs who voted against it. They were allowed to vote with their conscience on this issue. Um, uh, Let's... Uh, talk for a moment about what that means for Aaron O'Toole, who, by the way, voted in favor of the motion uh, as he tries to uh, to to navigate some of these uh, these issues that bring out the social conservatives in his caucus.
2: Well, it undoubtedly is an issue for the for the conservatives. I think we tried to paper over the cracks. There were only seven conservatives who voted against two abstained. I think eight others made it clear they weren't weren't very happy. They, you know, saying we'll vote for it, but we want it sent to, to committee, and we want to see some amendments. You know, at that stage, you're up to about 17 MPs. There were 23 MPs who didn't vote. It's not clear to me how many of those were Conservatives, but clearly some of them were, including former leader Andrew Shearer. So potentially, you could have as many as 40 MPs in the in the Conservative ranks who are not happy with the way the leader uh, urged them to vote. So, you know, I think it it is an issue. I think. The overwhelming consensus in the Conservative Party is that they do not want to make this rift public, because I think it was a very calculated tactic on Justin Trudeau's part to bring forward this bill and try and expose some of these cracks. But you know, by and large, I think they've gotten away with it. But the, the, but the divisions are still there, and the opposite, the uh, the government will try and exploit them every which way.
0: Meanwhile, the Bloc Québécois is trying to force a vote on a motion that would have the uh, House demand an apology from the government over invoking the War Measures Act in 1970 to have the Prime Minister apologize for that. It was his father, Prime Minister Trudeau at the time, uh, Pierre Trudeau, of course, who invoked the War Measures Act during the FLQ crisis in October 1970. Um, There's obviously some politics at play here. Uh, What do you think about this effort by the Bloc Québécois to have Justin Trudeau apologize for something effectively that his father did.
2: Right, but I think Trudeau is reaping the whirlwind of, of apologizing to just about every other uh, marginalized and, and offended group in society. I think it's a bit disingenuous of, of Blanchet to try and do this. I mean, obviously, it, it must play well in Quebec because otherwise he wouldn't be doing it. But, uh, you know, as the, the conservatives have pointed out, for them, the October crisis is about the death of the Deputy Premier of Quebec, Pierre Laporte. I would, I would hope that there was more sympathy from that point of view than with the, the uh, terrorists who killed him. So, you know, clearly, the War Measures Act was an extreme act by the by trudeau the, uh, of the elders' government. But, uh, you know, with the, that's with the benefit of hindsight. I think uh, our sympathy should be with the, with the victims and not with the perpetrators.
0: All right, John, great to have your comments on all of this today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. From the very beginning, we acted quickly
2: uh, on countering this pandemic as best as we possibly could.
0: Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, The Globe and Mail argues opposition MPs are right to seek answers, as Canada surpasses 10,000 deaths from COVID-19. The Globe writes, No one should assume it was inevitable that this moment would arrive. There are things all levels of government could have done to better protect Canadians. As the consequences of the pandemic drag into winter, it's important to ask why they weren't. Canadians have a right to transparency. So it's good to see that the opposition parties have had the audacity to try to force the government to provide some answers. In the Toronto Star... Susan Delacorte asks if COVID-19 is the antidote to Trump-style populism in Canada. Delacorte writes, You don't need a doctorate in political science to understand why populism's charm has faded through the pandemic, at least the populism that is defined by mistrust of governments and experts. Governments are helping people hold their lives together, and experts are helping save lives. All Canadians need to do is glance south to see what happens when politicians drop the ball or ignore the medical advice they're getting. At Policy Options, Tony Charles argues that moving forward on the lobster fishery means addressing access and conservation. Charles writes Reconciliation and First Nations rights are national priorities. In fisheries, that means supporting better fishery access and more self governance. It also means a federal government role in supporting non-Indigenous fishers who are impacted. What is happening in the fishery also provides lessons for reconciliation more broadly. Beyond the fishery, there is a need for attention to increasing Indigenous involvement in other parts of the economy. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. As we discussed, MPs will spend the day debating a Bloc Québécois motion asking the federal government for an official apology for the events of the October crisis of 1970. CPAC's Martin
1: Stringer has the background on what will be a highly charged debate. Mark, this year is the 50th anniversary of the October crisis, as Quebecers have come to know it. And the Bloc Québécois decided to table this motion faced with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's refusal to apologize for the actions of the federal government in October 1970. That was when a radical and violent group called the Front de Libération du Québec, or the FLQ, after several years of bombings, kidnapped a British trade representative to Canada, James Cross, and Quebec's Labour Minister Pierre Laporte. In response, then Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, at the request of Montreal and the province of Quebec, declared the War Measures Act and called in the Canadian Army. About a week later, Pierre Laporte's body was found in a car trunk. The Bloc Québécois is asking for the federal government to apologize for the fact that about 500 other people, other Quebecers, were arrested and detained for questioning by authorities. Most were never charged. This motion stirs up a deep debate within Quebec society about whether the events and the invocation of the War Measures Act was justified. It'll be a difficult vote for the 10 Conservative MPs from Quebec, the 35 Liberal MPs and possibly the one NDP MP from Quebec. Conservative Quebec MP Gérald Deleterre, his party's house leader, has already made it clear that he and his colleagues in the Conservative caucus will vote against the motion as they feel the federal government was justified because these were terrorist acts. Many federal liberals from Quebec feel the same way. But Bloc leader Yves-Francois Blanchet has promised to make this vote as high profile as possible, elevating it into a type of test of allegiance, a litmus test, or a test of Quebec nationalist credentials. And he says he will try and make Quebec MPs who vote against the motion pay a political price. So, mark a debate and a vote to watch for. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will speak with the Premier of
0: Alberta and the Mayor of Edmonton before meeting virtually with the President of the European Council and the President of the European Commission. He will also make virtual visits to a school in Valley, Nova Scotia, and two businesses in Montreal. Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau will make a funding announcement in support of farm workers in Prince Edward Island. Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan, Will make a virtual announcement on reducing emissions in the energy sector. And NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will make an announcement about ending the profit driven care in long term care centers. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, October the 29th. Tune into primetime politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.